Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey y'all, it's Jessie. Hi, it's Helen here. And you're listening to another episode of Asian Bitches Down Under. Hey guys, how's it going? Helen? Yeah, I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm struggling with back pain, struggling with being oh, in yeah. my 30s now. Goodness. It's, um, it's a process of learning and being patient with yourself. I think that's what I'm discovering year by year as I um, head into my 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, just being okay with the fact that my body no longer heals as quickly as it used to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I, I did some yoga the other week and then I must have just strained something. And then, like, I literally have not been able to move my lower back for a couple of days. Ouch. And, you know, yeah. going to the physio is so expensive, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it it's is. fucking awesome. I fucking love my physio, Steve, like, really gets in there. And um, it's so vital what they do. But, man, you need to be rich to access. Like, I was just thinking, if I was in the States, I would not be able to afford like it's almost it's more than a hundred bucks every time I see him. Yeah, I know it's expensive. It's just these things we take for granted. I know it's Your crazy. Body, it's especially cr- the body. Exactly. Yeah. Anything to do with the body, I just think <sighs> healthcare, all those ugly, boring things that we never think about. You know, when you're younger. Yeah. yeah exactly. exactly. Gosh, yeah. I when I was in my twenties, I was being bashed around on the frisbee field day in day out. Like I would fall, literally fall on my knees and it'll be violent. But like literally the next day I would be okay. Yeah, yeah. I think. Like did you feel once you hit 30 mm-hmm. um, that your body just no longer <laughs> recovered as quickly? Yeah. <laughs> I think I've been saying like almost more often now than before or ever that I, I hate mm. being old. <laughs> like I, just I actually love being older. In, really? Yeah. I love. Well, like I, I, I definitely don't. Uh, I don't love the fact that my body takes much longer to recover, mm-hmm. but I do love the the things that I'm noticing getting older. Oh yeah, the experience. Um, I yeah. love that. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, it's just um, being patient with oneself and just learning that there are some things that are so fulfilling mm-hmm. that you do not like. It's almost like the, the year by year as I get older, mm-hmm. and when I ever whenever I say this to people, they're like, "Oh fucking hell, you're still in your early thirties." Like, fuck you. <laughs> But like what I mean is like when I what I mean is like um year by year I discover things like I, I almost feel like there are spectrums of my selfhood mm-hmm. that I did not even think was possible when I was in my twenties. And it's and if I had told my twenty year old self about these things, she would not have even tried to listen to me. Yeah, she would me. tell you to fuck off. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. She would say the only thing that matters is getting a lot of sex <laughs> with men. And I don't know, like looking good, you know, all these parameters that we have for a fulfilling life are so different in your thirties. And I love, yeah, I love growing into that wisdom, you know, it's not the physical feeling that we're encountering now as in our bodies not taking up as much. Yeah. I can understand. Yeah. Like you had a bit of back pain a few weeks ago. Yeah, I did. It was from yoga as well. It's just so strange. I think really, yeah. because during this period, you know, with the pandemics, everyone's like pretty much cooped up in their own houses and you just have to find something to do. Yeah, I think a lot of people has turned to yoga. I mean, for me, I'm, I I never really liked yoga, but it it really, I, I think it really kind of pushed my body to the max to, 
Yeah, just uh, the physical exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of yoga, I went on a yoga date with a guy last mm-hmm. night. So he invited me. It was a first date. Um, oh, okay. And I feel still a bit upset about it because here's what happened. Um, I feel hurt by it. So um, he told me that he was going to book a class in for me, which I thought, great, awesome. Mm-hmm. It was on the other side of the bridge, so in Chatswood. Oh, okay. And so it's completely not my scene. You know, it's so different. Mm-hmm. The um, the demographic, the... Yeah. I would say Chatswood people are just as rich as like inner West Sydney people, but they're just very different, right? Yes. And uh, I went there and I thought it was nice that I, I just thought it was a great way to meet someone, you know, because I love yoga mm-hmm. so much. And then I discovered when I got there that he had also invited his neighbor. Oh, okay. And this neighbor was this like young, hot girl. She was so hot. And then she ended up coming to dinner with us as well. Okay. So did he set the... Like, what the fuck? Did he set the perimeter properly as in, like, is it only a date between you two or did he tell... Yeah, he didn't didn't tell me that the neighbor was also coming to the dinner. And so I felt like, even though it was very, like... You know how I'm approaching dating now? It's like, you know, very Mm lighthearted. I was... I was... I didn't actually mind that she was coming to yoga with us uh, or the dinner but I would have appreciated that he told you before yeah Yeah, I know I I think it's a courtesy that he's supposed to have I know and it's a first date as well you never know whether or not he was just trying to get that girl out of her house do you understand what I mean like sometimes I know that there are guys or girls that's trying to I don't want to use the word manipulate but yeah utilize Mm. someone else saying that oh yeah it's going to be like a group thing trying to receive more Yeah. yeah Um, attentions, yeah, from that individual person. Attention, yeah, uh, yeah exactly, yeah. I almost felt like, I mean, he was very friendly, and this dude mm-hmm. was like, he was not a dick at all. The way they interacted was, it was clear that they had something going on, uh, that they were okay. friend, they were friendly in a way that wasn't completely plutonic. Mm-hmm. And during the dinner, um, she was actually more interesting than he. Um, uh-huh. As as often is the case, whenever I mingle with people, I yep. often find that I'm more attracted, not sexually, but more, uh, I found that the women are more appealing. Yes. Um, but, but I still felt a bit injured by the end of it. And I'm still covering from it this morning because oh. I was like, I, I don't know why I feel hurt because like, I don't know this man. I don't have feelings for him, but I'm still trying to process the reason why I'm hurt. And I think it's because he used me under the pretext of like a date mm-hmm. in order to fulfill his own whatever. Maybe he was fucking her. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But it still felt like I was being used mm-hmm. somehow, yeah. you know? And that I think is why I'm a bit hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can yeah. understand that. Yeah, he's at the fault of not doing you know having the courtesy of at least letting you know beforehand yeah. that it's actually gonna be like a three people date <laughs> yeah yeah which i wouldn't have mind mm-hmm. if he told me mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's just like the expectation and the disappointment afterwards <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i wasn't ex- yeah yeah i wasn't expecting sex mm-hmm. from him because i don't want to have sex on with any stranger on the first date that's not me you know how i feel about mm-hmm. sex now i like i could be celibate. i'm very happy to be celibate for the rest of my life um, but it's still hurtful. Yeah, yeah. It still felt hurtful, which I'm surprised at myself. I thought that I wouldn't so easily be hurt, mm, mm. but maybe maybe I'm more sensitive than I yeah, care to admit. It's always hard to know. Uh-huh. On another note, what did you get up to this week? Okay, so I eventually finished um, Bernadine Everesto's book, yeah. The Woman and Other. Um, I think I mentioned mm-hmm. it before that her unique style of writing, it's something... That I think it's possibly to to going to become a bit more mainstream in the future. Cool. Okay. I mean, 
um, I just feel like that she's not following the very constrictive style of writing. You know,、mm. the words have flowed out so easily when you read them, and I felt quite connected with this book in the sense that the stories include culture clash, you know, mother daughter relationship, and the essentially emotional roller coasters for black and people of color in Western nation. What I would advise for people who want to read this book is that try to complete the. The reading in a short time because I took quite long. I think over three weeks to finish、yeah. this book, and because there's multiple characters in the story, like in the book, and they have intertwined or overlap stories, like you read to need to remember from the very beginning of the book that the character will appear later in the book, and I really enjoy reading this book as、um, it portrays you know stories of characters from. Very different backgrounds, you know the intersectionality. Being woman with conservative backgrounds, woman with adventuring out their sexuality, and also、um, there's trans people in the in the book as well. Yeah, great. And and how they struggle into in within the society, how they struggle with their family. I want to actually extend this the discussion of a. Book with a connection of a webinar that I've t- attend yesterday. Yeah,、um, cool. It's 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 gonna be kind of long rant of myself, but the webinar is actually conducted by University of Sydney's business、uh, faculty. I was invited as an alumni, and the topic was around leadership during pandemic. One of the expert on the panel, I think her name was Katrina Wallace, and she's an advisor on the ethical issue of around. AI, artificial intelligence,、yeah. and she commented how AI will pretty much replace a lot of our current work. Yeah, right. By using the past and historical data and algorithm to process and produce the work, you know, for humans. But she said there's a flaw in the historical data, which she also mentioned the book Invisible Woman.、Mm. You know how a lot of Uh, historical data is actually quite flawed and biased and prejudiced. Yeah, and sexist. Every everything, everything. Of course, just, and racist.、Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm thinking that perhaps the creativities from, like, for example, that used to be non-mainstream. For example, you know, like black, indigenous people of color, LGBTQI groups, and all other minorities. The group in the minorities, creativity will be a bit more valued because. Yeah. We are currently perhaps I'm I'm just guessing you know I'm taking like a leap of guessing by saying that because our mind and our brain、uh, cannot be replaced by、uh, AI at the moment because there's not enough yeah, data in the past yeah and hopefully yeah. that it will become a bit more popularized yeah in saying yeah. that I there's actually can you believe it like there's a、um, op-ed that's written by an AI. Called GPT Dash Three that was published in the Guardian、yeah. so、this week,、mm, and、right. you can just you, you when you read it, you're kind of scared by it because you often think that、uh, opinion editorial is written by a human that's got a processed mind and、mm. a certain level of intelligence, and now、mm. you're reading a piece of. Um, article that's written by AI. Okay, what else that will be possible to be replaced by artificial intelligence in the very near future? Yeah, yeah, totally.、Uh, one of my ex-boyfriends,、um, he was obsessed with AI, and、um, a few years ago, when I was working on Lonely Girl, he told me that he was really intrigued by the idea that in a few years' time,、mm. AI computers will be able to write、mm-hmm. fiction、yes. novels, and apparently they already have. They already have like, and and people can't tell the difference between. 
a robot and a human writing a book uh-huh. which and like uh, he was really excited about that prospect but I remember thinking I'm not interested in that I'm not interested in replacing robots well, replacing writers mm-hmm, with robots mm-hmm. yeah I understand robots replacing other human resources but not not when it comes to the arts yeah of I'm course. not going to say creativity I'm just going to say the arts how interesting. That sounds like an excellent webinar. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Like when she mentioned Invisible Woman, like it kind of reminded me that, yeah. Like, yeah, I have to go on and read that book. Yeah, yeah, everyone has to read that book. I mean, I haven't read it, but um, we often talk about how important it is for us to go. Definitely. And yeah, and I think that the, the structure around culture discussions, I think that's going to be very, it's going to be ever-changing. You know, you can't really have an AI to be involved without experience. I mean, you can have the data and algorithm within an AI, but how much that, you know, an AI can produce, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I never know, of course, until it happens. Yeah. yeah. Let's take a, a, a bit of a break before we move on to the cultural consumptions we took this week. We'll be right back, guys. So welcome back to Asian Bitches Down Under. Uh, this week, you know how Billy and I, uh, we're going through the witches mm-hmm kind yep. of theme of the 90s, 80s and 90s. So this week we saw The e- Witches of Eastwick. Have you heard of that film? No, I haven't. I hadn't heard about it, but I... I oh, know, sorry. I've heard of the film, but I've never mm-hmm. seen it. It's starring um, massive, massive Hollywood superstars, Jack Nicholson, Cher, Susan Sarandon and Michelle mm-hmm. Pfeiffer. It was a film um, based on Job Up- John Updike's f- novel of the same name. And the novel, I believe, was published in 1984, and I'm trying to. We're trying to read it now. We've started a book club <laughs> together, um, and the film was um, filmed in 1987, so the year I was born. And it was so fucking weird. It, it's so weird. That's all I have to say about that. Seriously, that's all I have to say about that. It's about these three women who are divorcees, and they conjure up a man. And then this man turns out to be some like Trumpian, wild, weird beast. Um, for all you listeners out there, probably don't watch it. I wouldn't recommend watching it because after we watched it, we were like, that was fucking weird. But I'm going to read the book now and I guess I will circle back and tell you how the book mm-hmm. is. I've never read any Job- John Updike, uh, so it'll be interesting. Do you think it was appropriate? Maybe it was, was it set in the 80s? Yeah, 1987. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, the book is apparently set in the 60s. Oh, But the okay. film was set in the 80s, so it's interesting. Mm. But uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, far out, she's absolutely stunning when she's mm. young. Yeah, Just absolutely she's, stunning. Yeah. And uh, so there's a great scene where Susan Sarandon, she's a cellist and a music <laughs> teacher in the okay. in the film. And there's a great scene where she... She's playing the Dvorak cello concerto. She's going wild. Uh-huh. And then and then she kind of um, starts feeling like Jack Nicholson comes over with a fiddle and he plays for her. And they start, like, there's sexual tension that builds up. And at one point she plays this climactic phrase in the Dvorak. Uh-huh. I believe it was the first movement of the Dvorak cello concerto. Mm-hmm. If you haven't heard it, guys, it is the best cello. It is the best concerto, I think. Yeah, and there's one scene where she kind of gets turned on by him, and then her she throws her cello off the floor, off herself, and then the cello just like starts erupts into flame. 
It's so funny. That scene. Yeah, it, it just erupts into... It's like that scene, you know that scene in The Simpsons where Homer's making breakfast for Mr. Burns uh-huh. and then he burns everything up, everything he does. And then he pours cereal into the... Milk into the cereal and then uh-huh. it erupts. <laughs> yeah, to say it's like that. Okay, that is weird. Um, yeah, I, I love that scene. Um, but anyway, Helen, what did you consume? Uh, apart from Everest, though, I haven't yep. really um, watched much this week. Kind of been following the one of the social debate in Taiwan uh, because last week there was uh, a massive social so- social news that came out of uh, a woman who committed suicide, which you know you don't really happen to see in a lot of Western media's because we don't tend to report you know suicidal news. Um, it, it when erupted in like a social media in Taiwan is because that she left a note saying that my mother-in-law killed me. What the hell? So it kind of opened up a, a whole conversation about the complicated situation between daughter-in-law and mother-in-law in Taiwan, which is so fucked up. Can yeah. I just tell listeners? Yeah, it is. It is so so fucked. Yeah, you know the continuous continuation of perpetuated, you know, of power dynamics and yeah. intergenerational issues in. I, like from my experience, I can only talk about like Taiwan background. Um, perhaps yep. it happens in all other you know countries with a very conservative, yeah, yeah, and traditional family values. I think um, because generally that in Taiwan, when you're married, you're considered to be married into your husband's family. That's right, and it has been a lot of problems, and I've heard a lot of issues between. Daughter-in-law and mother-in-law that because they have to be, they need to live together, you know, some kind of filial POD kind of shit value yep. that they continue to have. So often that the daughter-in-law end up, you know, like serving the mother-in-law. The mother-in-law, yeah, like a slave, literally, literally a slave. I'm not joking. I'm not yeah. joking at all. It, it kind of remind me of one of the news that happened in China last year. A woman died when she was giving birth because her husband's family refused to sign the paper for her to go into C-section. The mother-in-law insisted her of having a natural birth. Oh, my God. So it's su- it was such a tragic. That is so fucked. Yeah, it was so what fucked. What the fuck? We live in such a fucked up world. I'm... I just don't understand it. I do not understand it. So what happened with this news was that um, people start... The news in Taiwan. the news in Taiwan is that people starting to, you know, dig up, you know, what happened with this woman. How she... she, Was she, like, having mental illness? Was it really that she was being pressured with by her mother-in-law? So people found out um, what happened was that she had a great job. Like, she had a great career path and she's got kids herself. And she married mm-hmm. into like a very like reasonable wealthy family, and yep. mm-hmm. apparently that her husband was having an affair, but the mother in law was covering it for the son and yep. saying that oh it's because it's like she's literally blaming the daughter in law blaming yeah, the, the wife, wife saying that yep. oh, because you're not satisfying him, that's why he's going now his yep. way to find other woman, picking up all sort of fights, you know they I just don't understand why woman would going down going down that path of deliberate conflict uh with another woman you know it it feels really bad for me seeing stories like this uh, just picking up issues from about her daily life you know complaining about how she is failing to 
parent her kids and yeah. just bits and pieces. I think that's probably pushed her over the cliff and you know, took her own life, which is really sad. Yeah. 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 I think what we often don't know here in the West is that there's an incredible amount of pressure and a lot of historical baggage, which is so inseparable when you are, when you do become a wife in places like Taiwan, you're really joining a very long line of women in history who, once you become a mother, uh, sorry, once you, be, once you become a wife, you are part of this cohort and you are obliged. There's a very much standardized obligation in which you mm. are, mm. you become very much a slave to your husband's mother and you follow not just your husband's rules, but almost it's almost like your husband's mother has even more, takes on a grander importance than your own husband because your husband being a man and an Asian man in the Asian society is filled with so much responsibility and duty and and what comes with that duty and 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 that responsibility is the sense that he owes his whole life whole life to his mother mm. and for the rest of his life as an adult he needs to really do as much as he possibly can to satisfy his mother mm. there is no there is no making your mother unhappy and and what and what the wife needs to do once she becomes married into that family is she becomes part of that obligation to fulfill any desires that the mother has it's almost like it's almost like in the in the east what i find is that you become a wife and you struggle for about 40 years becoming a wife and once you have your son um, you get to then boss around your son's wife because you had suffered for so many years mm, mm. and you feel like you're a, you are now in a position at the age of 60, 70 years old to demand that you are respected because you have gone through all that suffering with your own mother-in-law. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just like a cycle of fucking abuse. Exactly. I agree. It's a cycle. It's yeah. absolutely a cycle. And I don't know how that's going to be broken because feminism in the way that it's evolved here in the West has not evolved in the East. Mm -hmm. not At enough. least not, yeah. not in the mainstream way. It hasn't leaked out mm -hmm. into the mainstream populace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I, I really don't see how that will change. What do you think about that? Um, I am seeing like older generations, but very, very few um, feminists that's, starting to change around the values you know surrounding family and society but I think it's just not enough people avoid talking about it I mean I think it's also down to economical impact as well one of the lawyer who was commenting on this news he said that the only solution is that don't ever live together with your in-laws yeah 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 but a lot of people don't get that option yeah exactly yeah unfortunately exactly but I think if you don't get that option, fucking don't get married. It's not that easy. A lot of women are required to get married. It's not a choice for them yeah. in this world. Oh, fuck. That's something we often don't remember. Remember when we when we're talking about marriage, um, it's often under the guise of um, liberation and choice here in the West. But marriage mm. is an obligation that is enforced upon women in other countries, in mm -hmm. in most mm -hmm. other countries, in fact, um, outside of the West. It's not a choice 
at all. Yeah. So we should yeah. never forget that. Yeah. So let's take a break before we launch into our main segment for this week. Yay. Uh, we'll be right back, guys. Oh, welcome back, guys. So this week we wanted to talk about this thing that both Helen and I have been intrigued for a long, a long time. For me, mm-hmm. it's something that I've never sat down to explicitly interrogate this idea of sexual empowerment and what it means. Mm-hmm. So a few yeah. weeks ago, we were approached by a, a woman who runs a business selling lingeries. And Helen and I started thinking about why neither of us wear lingerie. Because I don't, mm-hmm. yeah, I think Helen and I, and I started asking all my friends and we, all my friends were like, yeah, we only buy, like the most expensive lingerie I've ever bought is from like Bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually once mm-hmm. bought Calvin Klein lingerie when I was like 24 um, because I was like, what's the whole fuss with good lingerie? And then I bought it and it was like $100 for the entire set, like mm-hmm. top and bottom. And it was very, it wasn't sexy. Like I've never actually bought sexy, sexy lingerie. Um, mm-hmm. Calvin Klein is quite minimalist, you know. And I bought it um, thinking I it might make me feel like a real woman because I had just mm-hmm. started a full-time job at 24 and mm-hmm. it did not change my relationship to my body at all, at all, mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the last bra I bought was like three years ago from Kmart. Like I'm just so, you know how um, Helen and I started talking about like what makes us feel sexy because we were like, well, maybe people buy lingerie to feel sexy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I have never felt like when I wanted to feel sexy with a partner, I just fucking get undressed. Like I just, I just, I'm <laughs> naked. I think for me, nakedness uh-huh. is sexy. Yeah. What's, what about you? What were you thinking? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. What I was thinking is that on the turn sexual empowerment, like I, I want to separate sex and empowerment first, you know, like empowerment for me is being the idea of confident enough that I don't care the judgment of others and just to be myself but at the same time you know not really eroding the values that I have for example you know moral ethical values yeah um as I consider that I'm a bit I'm pretty progressive person and of course there are things that perhaps that I'm not informed yeah aware or informed Mm. enough Mm. to engage to understand yet um, empowerment for me means that I can take control of what I do and at right. the same time understand the consequences of my choice. Mm. I think the main part of empowerment is the consequences, you know, not like I guess it's probably different for everyone. Uh, it's definitely give and take in everything. Uh, as in for empowerment for us here today, you know, to construct identities around sexual um, empowerment and how we're representing ourselves for others. Yeah, exactly. Through the lens of all our, ourselves, not you know the others. Yeah, yeah. In saying that, you know, sexual empowerment yeah. for me is knowing when to say yes and when to say no. Totally. Uh, the idea around consent, you know, first and mm-hmm. most important. I think. I guess. Yeah. I guess a lot of people gets down to start thinking about confidence and their body and their, with, whether or not they're okay to join it off and not afraid to step out of their mainstream ideas of you know sexual beauty standards and all that um part of partly for me is like um you understand your own libidos you know and your own intuition about your body and when you want 
or not want to have sex. Of course, down to the choices of by myself, not the other people, and not obviously not what the social expectation. In saying that, I think this includes yeah. <laughs> you know the choice of using sex toys yeah. and how individual chooses to pleasure yeah. themselves, and also setting. Boundaries <laughs> with your sexual partner. You know, some people are fine with having multiple sexual partners, but others are not. Uh, a lot of my friends are. It's so normal. I I have the most vanilla sex life. <laughs> vanilla. I'm so vanilla when it comes to sex. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we'll be talking about. Did we 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 mentioned that we want to talk do a part about the monogamy, didn't we? Yeah. Oh yeah, polygamy. Um, polo- po- polyamory. Polyamory. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the turn. Yeah, yeah, we'll do another pod on that once I like do a couple of workshops and interview a few people. Yeah, but it's a massive issue. Yeah. Do you want to finish your your thoughts and then I'll jump in? Yeah. Okay. So I guess it's really down to very basic, like for the fundamental ideas about body autonomy. Yeah. You know how we teach kids and how we extend it to our sexual life and sexual relation in our adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. I love everything you've said, and my own feelings overlap with a lot of what you've said. So when I Mm -hmm. sat down to think about what the idea of sexual empowerment means for me, I think, like you said, it means being able to express my own sexuality. And this is the second part that's the most important, on my own terms. Mm -hmm. That is what's really the crux of what I feel empowerment means as a woman, on my own terms, because often our sexual experiences are not on our own terms. Often it's mm-hmm. on the terms of the man who's... Like, if you're a yes. hetero woman, you're having cis straight sex man with a sex... Sorry, straight sex with a man. It's often the man who ends up dictating what goes on mm-hmm. and the man who decides when the sex stops because, you know, it stops when he comes. Sexual empowerment for me means to have power over my own decisions, over my own body, yes. like you said. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And having expectations of sexual pleasure in a way that makes me feel comfortable and nourishing and nourishing. Nourishing mm-hmm. and nurturing. That's right, yes. So many of my sexual experiences have felt either coercive or unpleasant or strained or awkward or forced. Not forced mm-hmm. by the man, not not forced as in I have I've I don't think I don't think I've ever been raped. I'm still struggling to find the words to explain what had happened in my previous abusive relationship. But um what I mean by forced as in forced by my own need and my own compulsion to feel mm-hmm. accepted and loved. And in our society mm-hmm. the way to cure loneliness or the idea that you're not loved is by having sex Mm -hmm. that is probably one of the first things we all reach for um and you know sexual empowerment this idea would mean something very different if you're a disabled person for instance um Mm -hmm. cis people have it so much easier people who've been abused have it much harder there's a lot of trauma to unfurl and heal the wound and because sexual trauma has this shameful component of it to it, there's that added layer of your own shame. You feel you can't talk about it with people. And I think the reason why cis straight white men don't talk about feeling sexually empowered, you know, you never hear about a man usually saying, oh, I feel empowered sexually. It's because they tended not to have been within the groups of people who've had their sexual bodies exploited you know, mm-hmm. usually it's the mm-hmm. marginalized groups who have fallen prey to perpetrators. And these perpetrators have been historically men. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that men are not victims of sexual exploitation. Like, you know, a lot of unfortunate men, a lot of victims of 
you know, um, clerical sexual abuse have been men. So definitely I'm not saying that mm. they're excluded. I'm just saying, like, men don't talk about feeling sexy, and that's interesting because mm. they there is not a lot... There's not a large distance between their outcome and their desires. Like, if they want... Yeah. If a man wants sex, they call, they call it being horny, which means that they have this desire that needs to be fulfilled. And because we live in a world built around men's desires, men have controlled the world. Men have ensured that when a man wants sex, he usually gets it pretty quickly without obstacles. Mm -hmm. Now, here I'm talking about straight cis men, obviously. Gay men have more barriers to jump through. So in of Australia, um, obviously, they're less inhibited. But in places like Bulgaria, for instance, and a lot of other... Um, conservative societies they still have to hide their desires and be sexually satisfied only in places like public toilets um mm. like garth greenwell writes a lot about this in his two books um and for any woman or person of color or disabled person or non-binary person or trans person or any other marginalized group there's a huge gap between this desire and this outcome we need to fight mm. harder to reach further and jump through more obstacles to close that gap between our desires and our outcomes. You know, like I, I want to have sex with a safe, loving, generous, warm, kind-hearted, gentle, non-pushy, unselfish man. Someone mm -hmm. who will respect my decision to wait, you know, even if I want to wait five years or whatever. That shouldn't matter. Yes. You know, and I guess what yeah. I'm saying is that historically, marginalized people have been more vulnerable to what to to have their sexuality or their sexual desires exploited, or or used or manipulated by those whom hold higher sexual power and higher sexual capital. And in this world, it's the mm -hmm. cis straight white people. And because of that, we've had cumulatively suffered more at the hands of those people who hold more cachet more sexual power because in this world to hold more sexual capital for a woman is intrinsically detrimental in a way that it's not necessarily for a man so what i mean is that um so i know a couple of barristers um one of them is a very good looking straight white male he's very charming and um when he's in the courtroom and in his professional life even though he's charming and obviously like sexually attractive he's still taken very seriously in the courtroom and in his mm -hmm. profession, whereas I know this extremely attractive barrister female friend of mine, um, and she often gets treated differently around the, the chambers. Like even though she's just as smart and charismatic and this as this straight white guy, she is often like when people refer to her um, in the offices, you see the tenor in which people talk about her, and it's like she is the hot barrister. People refer to her as that hot woman because it's so rare to have a hot female barrister and so Gosh. yeah when so it's almost like her beauty has become this distracting thing that diminishes her credibility mm -hmm. and so it's hard for her to be taken seriously um and i just think about that when it comes to how a woman can perform sexual empowerment and where she's able to explore and project that on her own terms Mm -hmm. I love everything that you just said, especially on the part where you talked about uh, nurturing and nur nur nourishing. Nurturing and nourishing. That's yeah, why, you yeah. know, I think it needs to happen on the level, both on physical, you know, the intimacy between the bodies and also emotionally as well, which Absolutely. I think a lot of people fail to really 
understand yeah, that. I agree. It needs to be on emotional levels um, as well as the physical level. Yeah. And by saying that, you know, in the comparison of cis male and you know and females, how the society is particularly very sexist, you know, everywhere almost, you know, you you see that. Uh, woman, you know, what I'm talking about, just straight woman um, mm-hmm. being objectified. Yeah. Firstly, of their physical appearance before anything else, mm. you know, before her intelligence, before her emotional levels, before basically you just put, you know, her sexuality as a physical being, you know, objectified at first mm. rather than considering anything else i've i've got a a quote here from the sex therapist um jenna burrito in hawaii you know i think it's really important here that she mentioned Mm. a couple of key characteristics of sexual uh, empowerment she said that things like feeling free to express your own sexual interest feeling comfortable in your own body feeling Mm. confident saying yes and no yeah also prioritizing your safety over the need to please others yeah i love that i just want to say i had a sexual relationship with this guy who i was in love with so many years ago and i found it hard to say no to him when we were in bed whenever he asked for something i would always say yes because i felt so scared that if i said no he wouldn't like me Mm, mm. how fucked up is that i am so ashamed of myself i think it goes around the question between sexual empowerment versus sexual freedom and sexual validation you know like sex yeah like exactly. sex appeal for you as in you know are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it through the lens of your partner yeah and wanting to be loved yeah, yeah. right that's the thing like i'm i was in my 20s i was so desperate to be loved by this man that i he just did really awful things to me like i'm not saying he raped me but just so awful that i felt embarrassed now thinking it back and thinking i wasn't brave enough to say to him can you not do this Mm -hmm. it's making me uncomfortable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like what the fuck i am so i still i feel so ashamed that i wasn't strong enough to say hey can you not do this to me Mm -hmm. i feel so bad do you think you have the strength to do it now if no, well, refusing. Uh, let's hope so. Mm. I I think I do. Um, it's almost it's almost. I I still feel like I've been celibate for so long now, mm-hmm. uh, like a few years, and I feel like I don't know how I will respond. Mm-hmm. To be mm-hmm. honest, I feel that in the at least when I was having sex a few years ago, I felt that I was able to say no to the men I didn't actually love mm-hmm. um, easy, easier, mm-hmm. like easier. Mm-hmm. Like I was able to say no to guys I was seeing casually because I didn't like them. Whereas the men I really liked, I, w- I found it hard to say no to them because I wanted them to like me back. Mm-hmm. That's so fucked up. I think it goes uh, with the idea of um, social desirabilities, you know, like how we're kind of bombarded with a lot of messages in the media, you know, like sometimes it could confuse us of what actual empowerment exactly. looks like. For a woman. Exactly. That's right, exactly. You know, we're, we're kind of conflated sexual liberation with sexual ability, mm-hmm. which is, I, I think it's a bit dangerous because I'm just reading an article earlier this week thinking empowerment could be a lot of sex, yeah. but I think in, the important is that you get to choose. The, the power is... You, you know, you hold the power 
I think, of course, there's always a power struggle, power dynamic between two parties <laughs> or multiple parties when it comes to sex. When it comes to anything, power is political and power yeah. is mm. intrinsically linked to every aspect of our lives. And I love yeah. our discussion today because sex is something where we haven't managed to talk about the power dynamics as a whole society in a very constructive yes. way, in a very, yeah. in a way that's, that seeks to explain the realities of what we all face and our different metrics of social capital. In saying sexual capital, you know, you, we're talking about the currency between individuals yeah. and when we're discussing about like social desirability, I, I think the media have a lot to, to say about, you know, pretty much the proximity to certain standards like for us for what i've known is that is usually like the white whether or not that you're thin enough or you're wealthy enough those are pretty much in the asian standards you know bai. i think you need to be tall you need to be wealthy you need to be pale. Uh, white yeah. enough yeah pale enough to be to holding those currencies against who doesn't yeah, have exactly. those that you have the power over yeah. them to demand yeah, sex absolutely yeah. And to and to be the one who calls the shots, so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Helen, I want to know: Are you a sexual person? And you can interpret that however you want. I was going to ask you back, like, how do you define as a sexual person? Is in how would you define it? If someone just asked you, "Are you a sexual person?" How would you answer that question? In in regarding ha- having a lot of sex all the time. I I honestly have no idea how to answer in without knowing the definition of the person who's asking me. But I think that I enjoy sex, mm-hmm. okay, and I like the the power that I have with my partner of when we have sex. I don't know how much privacy I need to go get into this, but I think we like I'm I'm gonna get into yeah. the like age of having sex not in this same yeah. way as I was when I was younger that's what I think yeah, because I don't think the quantity really matters I think quality is more important for me and aren't you like reaching your you're reaching your Helen's in her yeah. I'm almost 40 and isn't that like the peak <laughs> of women's apparently according to the fucking scientists um isn't that like when a woman reaches her sexual peak or I, I I'm not I don't know. I'm just asking you because it's like the general, like stuff I've heard. But I have to say, I don't believe that. Mm. I believe that I could, mm-hmm. like, if I'm 78 and having amazing sex, I think that is actually entirely possible. I'm not going to let science and history dictate how I engage with my body, you know? Fuck that. I also doubt about like whoever, who is the scientist. Made up yeah, those, exactly. who did the study all men. and all that. <laughs> yeah, honestly. I think yeah, why yeah. should we listen to, I mean, they, they, of course they have scientific evidence at backgrounds as well, but as the years progress, you know, everything changes about our mentality, our intelligence, yeah, how we feel exactly. about ourselves. It's not necessary yeah. that when you reach your 40s or, you know, that you, you're supposed to have your sexual peak. I mean, that, that framework yeah. is kind of like putting into the brains of all the women and it's like the society expects you that you be you should be sexually active or highly active yeah, during this exactly. period of time. Yeah. Which I think is really yeah. bullshit because, you know, you can have know. your peak sexual activity during your 20s, 30s. 70s. Your 70s, yeah. And also, I think it's really down to individual, yeah. I don't think I'm the sexual person mm. I used to be. Uh, when I tell my friends 
about how long I've been celibate, all of them are like, what the fuck? Like, they, they're they all so shocked. And I'm like, it doesn't mean... It's almost like... Like, when I tell them the last... When I had... Last time I had sex, it's almost like I've told them I'm still a virgin. That's how they respond. I'm like, for me, not having had sex in years is as is as boring and unremarkable and unnoteworthy as as if I said to you, Helen, I haven't had dumplings yeah. for two years. <laughs> no, no, actually, that would be bad. That would be bad. Dumplings. Okay, it's just like me saying I haven't gone mm-hmm. ice skating for two years. It's like, who the... Like, for me, it doesn't... It's so monumentally irrelevant. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, to, to have sex... Like, I don't understand our whole craze around like about sex and like maybe being a virgin i don't know yeah about sex yeah like i wonder i wonder if i like say if i'm 55 and i tell my friends i haven't had sex in two years i wonder whether they will respond as crazily as they do now like i wonder if they think that's crazy because i'm kind of Mm. still kind of young um but i'm so viscerally disinterested in sex like i think if i like i still you know like touch myself and things i still i'm still a sexual person in that mm. i still want to pleasure myself mm. and i don't mind that but like when it comes to engaging with a man um i'm i haven't felt sexually horny or desirous towards mm. a man for years and i'm just like it for me it's almost like yeah it's like you seeking out you know, I don't know, uh, just this arbitrary, meaningless, irrelevant thing that has, for me, it's so not part of my daily existence, you know, intercourse. I, I agree with you that I, I hate the how the society's framework around that when you reach a certain age, you need to be popped. You know how in like in high school, we see all these, these teenage movies that... Yeah, losing their virginity. Yeah, losing their virginity and... Yeah take it as a big deal yeah or yeah. it's like a pathway to adulthood i think it's just really bullshit like what what makes what makes people think that if you become a non-virg if you're not a virgin anymore you're an adult like you're a very yeah. immature person if yeah, you exactly. don't really consider all aspects of how sex impacts your life and you just take it for granted just like yeah i've done it and that's it it's like yeah, yeah, I smoke a cigarette. <laughs> I'm an adult now. You yeah. know? I think sex education is very, very important. I think you've seen, I don't know mm. if you've seen one of the um, posts I've shared on my Facebook yesterday about how Australia Education Department, they want to kind of put more sex educations in schools. And mm. I say, like, my comment is that, you know, fuck to those parents who say no to this, you know, because yeah. I know that out there there's a lot of conservative parents that refuse to talk about sex education in their own household and they refuses the school to teach their kids about wow. sex education. Yeah. I mean, they think that, okay, if I don't teach them, they wouldn't do it. No, <laughs> okay? For fuck's sake, it's an internet era, okay? And even without internet, without own cells, like back in the 90s, yeah. You get it from your friends, which is, yeah. you know, so often is misguided or misinterpreted. Yeah, totally. So I remember when I masturbated as a young child, um, I felt like the deep sense of shame. I thought that, like, I remember being mm. a very sexual kid as a very mm. young kid. Um, and I remember whenever I orgasmed, I would feel, like, disgusted with myself. And then it was only when I was, like, eight or nine I read Dolly you know Dolly used to have this sealed section 
And then that was the first, yeah, Dr. Dolly. And it was the first time I came across the word masturbate. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Dolly told me that what I was doing, there was nothing shameful about it. So fucking thank you, Dr. Dolly, for getting rid of my shame that I enjoyed taking pleasure in my own body as a young girl. Mm-hmm. I think because we grew up with such a conservative values around yeah. sex yeah. that we haven't been taught about. You know, we've spoke in our previous <laughs> episodes about yeah, totally. you know, our dad. family. Yeah, dad would like go <laughs> apeshit crazy whenever a kissing scene happened on a movie. As though like a, a, a mouth-to-mouth action between a man and a woman was the most repulsive thing that he didn't <laughs> want us to look at. Yeah, I think the lack of discussion of, you know, Asian sexuality is yeah it's pretty much like it's quite damaging i think it's quite damaging for the young people mm. that are not taught properly about sex and yeah. not just on the biological sense i think a lot of things that are missing in you know in education as we growing up is that the emotional level about yeah. sex yeah that is often not really talked about yeah totally yeah. and it's so hard to talk about right yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was growing up, um, I was reading, I think I was reading Cleo and I also was reading Cosmopolitan oh, yeah. as well. Of course, there's still sections about sex. Yeah. So that's where I got my sexual education yeah. from. And also, I've grown up with, um, for those people who are, like for our listeners who are about the same age as me and with Asian backgrounds, I don't know if you know, there's a magazine from published in Hong Kong. It's called Yes. Mm. I often get this from like bookstores in Chinatown. Right. Like, during the 90s. and the I sec- didn't know that. Cool. Yeah, the sex education section is called Miss Sex. Uh-huh. It's similar to Cosmo, Cleo and Dolly, mm. you know. It's pretty much opened up the dialogue for, you know, the readers of the magazine that can write in and ask questions, even though that they think it's really ridiculous. But Miss Sex, which is this section in the magazine, you know, she will go through it in the way that's, doesn't sound embarrassing mm-hmm. or ashamed. Mm-hmm. You know, as Asians that we we're pretty much grown up telling us family or elderly is telling us, you know, sex is shameful, yeah. you don't talk about yeah. it. And when we have the pleasure of having sex yeah. that we question ourselves yeah. whether or not is this shameful? Should should I be feeling like this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that we can't really fully enjoy sex. Yeah. Like there's always a barrier. Because of what we've been taught. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, like after I would orgasm, I would feel like this r- whole body rush of disgust as though I had done something wrong, as though mm. I had taken something that was evil and consumed it. Like it was this feeling of, um, like like what you said, like, like in Asian culture, to be mm. a hedonist, mm. to take pleasure in your own pleasure is seen as deeply, deeply wrong and deeply immoral Mm. like if you did something for Mm. your own pleasure you're supposed to feel guilty and I think that's what I felt like I felt that whenever I orgasmed and it was such a pleasurable you know orgasms are great you know like five seconds of sheer kind of bliss uh, like Mm -hmm. nothing else Mm -hmm. right it's a physical bliss um but um the Asian societies have a very complex relationship almost like a very intolerant relationship to this idea of hedonism Mm -hmm. sorry Mm -hmm. um and, you know, it's seen, like I said before, shameful to take pleasure in your own pleasures, especially mm-hmm. bodily pleasures. Because, you know, yeah. like across all societies, we live in a, we live in, like in across a lot of societies, because most societies are patriarchal, we have been, as women, been given this idea that a woman's sexual 
um, capacity is a dangerous thing. You know, like if every society in history has made attempts to control a woman's sexuality because there is nothing more dangerous than a sexually liberated woman. Mm -hmm. Y'all know why men are scared of sexual women. It's also particularly like damaging for Asian women in the sense that um, what I know is that how the society has framed around the stereotype or stigma around the perception of Asian women, you know, being submissive, yeah. obedient, docile, accommodating, you know, and also hyposexual, yeah. you know, in the media. There's actually a very, very damaging, like, and sexist idiom in Chinese. Um,上得了厅堂,下得了厨房,入得了闺房. You know, it literally means that a, a perfect woman should be able to enter the halls as elegantly as possible and create. Uh, perfect food from the kitchen as well as being hypersexual in the bedroom so like in every aspect that's repulsive i think a lot of men are still following that kind of standard when you when they're like finding a partner it's just really shallow um if you just look at how like i want to quickly mention you know how as for the asian diasporas in western nations you know the also the colonialism impact of sexual influence um, I was just reading a academic paper by this uh, American Filipino woman, mm. and she wrote. Um, I'll, I'll link that show note into our show note. Here's what she said: that there's a something about brown skin, white mind does so impeccable job uh, explaining how inter- internalized racism and the common misinformed for the um, Western colonialization, you know, the colonial mentality is kind of transferred into a lot of like Asian immigrants, mm. how we should um, teach them that white and Western is superior to our past culture. Oh my God. Yeah, and how like psychological framework mm. for a lot of immigrants, they say that the past or the older generations, they think that because the Western power is more superior, yeah. so we should like just follow what their media is portraying us and it's kind of perpetuated and kind of doing a lot more damaging. Yeah. Like now we're trying to flip the other side saying that we want to create and also empower ourselves mm. around the framework of how the West is seeing um, Asian women mm. in, the se- in the sense of, you know, like sexual, like the sexual representation. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. always very hyposexual. Yeah. Like in the media and enter- entertainment. I feel I'm listening to you say that all these and I'm loving everything you're saying, but I'm also kind of laughing, chuckling internally because, you know, um, we have the shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and I think there have never actually even been one Asian woman. Like we are, he- why, mm. we are hypersexualized and yet we're not even considered by the broader Australian landscape as mm. people who are worthy of love. Because that's ostensibly mm-hmm. why batch like women go on the bachelor because they want to say, "Hey, I'm eligible for this beautiful man," but like yeah. like out of 114 women in the history of the bachelor's seasons in Australia, I think nine, 95 women have been white, and the others uh-huh. have been like darker skin Indians or like Indians oh, wow. who pass as okay. white, like they're very beautiful uh-huh. or fair skin Indians, like Anglo Indians. Yeah. But I think I'm pretty sure that we've never, maybe we've had one or two Asians, but they've always been, you know, kicked out within the first or two rounds. Uh-huh. But yeah, we're just yeah. like, we're hypersexualized. And yet we're also, we're not even considered as eligible romantic partners. 
Mm-hmm. In saying that, I don't really watch Bachelor or Bachelorette, so I just think that they're. Oh, the last time I watched it was like in 2017 at my friend, my friend's mm-hmm. Christmas party, <laughs> and it was like under the guise of a joke. But I think, uh, yeah, who's who knows, right? Yeah. I think we we should be also like challenging the hegemonic, you know, how the West created narratives about Asian woman sexuality. I I want to just bring up quickly about I uh, when I was doing the research for this part, like the me- memoirs of Geisha. I've read this book like mm. so many like so long ago, and also watched the movie. Yeah, and now I'm looking back and. Like I always know that it was written by a white dude, but I never thought about yeah how I never really questioned the way that he presented the story about this geisha into now mm-hmm. that we're you know questioning why you know we have to question why and how the West have portrayed like uh, Asian woman and their idea around. How we should represent ourselves, and I just think that it's just ridiculous.、Uh, in saying that, I, I know that、um, I think I was just looking up at the Wikipedia. The writer, the author of the the book, Arthur Gordon, he's actually、uh, yeah、William. Arthur Gordon. Yeah,、oh. he was actually sued for breach、oh. of contract and defamation of character. The the retired geisha、uh, Iwasaki. So he based it on a real person. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. And yeah, so apparently they started to they they agreed to protect her anonymous you know status if she told him about you know her life and of course due to like some kind of traditional code of silence about the client、uh, he listed、uh, Iwasaki as the source of his acknowledgement so she wasn't happy later that they had a settlement、mm. outside of、mm. the court something like that. Um, but apparently Iwasaki, the geisha, that she actually、mm. later went on to write a autobiography, which shows、um, it's indicated on Wiki saying、right. that it's very different pictures of the twentieth century geisha life that the one shown in Gordon's novel. So I would actually want to read that book. You know, it would be it would be better actually through the lens of her own experience rather than maybe written by someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Ah,、uh, to finish things、mm. off, I wanted to ask a couple of last-minute questions. Helen, why do you think men don't feel sexy, or do they feel sexy? Because I have never heard a white, a straight, sorry, a straight、mm. man say, talk about feeling sexy, and why is that? I think、um, because they hold more currency, <laughs> sexual currency. I don't think they, it, it's like they don't need to like they're the privileged group that they don't need to. Say do anything to have you know woman to present themselves to them. I think that's one thing. And when you were when I think when you sent me the question, I was just thinking, okay, the first person I want to consider sexy. I、uh, it's really hard because、um, like on today's pod, we're just basically talking about a bit more physical. Yeah, you know the intimacy between physical bodies and things like that, but we haven't really covered the emotional intelligence levels because you can be attracted, you you can be sexually attracted by another person's intelligence, isn't it? I think there's a term for it. Oh yeah, and you know every time, every time I say I like smart people,、mm. someone tells me, oh you're a blah 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 blah, <laughs> whatever that word is called. That 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 term where you're only attracted to sexual um to intelligent people. I'm so <laughs> fucking sick of that. I'm like. Don't put me in a、yeah. box. I'm attracted to.、Um, I'm not attracted to intelligence. I'm attracted to people who are cerebral, and that doesn't necessarily mean、mm-hmm. intelligence. 
Mm. You know, intelligence is such a wide, expansive right. spectrum. Yeah. I, I think I know what you mean. Um, what I find sexy is actually has nothing to do mm-hmm. with sex. What I find sexy is someone who's really original, who's someone really undiminished by the idea of being themselves. And someone who's sexy is someone who um, I want to get to know, not necessarily someone mm-hmm. I want to fuck. And um, the sexiest people are always the most um, courageous in the sense that they don't give a shit what people think about them. Yeah. And they don't try to be likable. They just be themselves. Yeah, like, yeah, for me, that's always been the benchmark for, like, the most appealing kind of person is someone who is like, fuck everything, (laughs) fuck the world, and I'm going to think what I think, and that's all that matters. I love that. I I think I really love that. I I think I love that, um, I don't know what to call it. It's just this kind of gravitas of or this hubris that doesn't call on the approval of any other human being or mm-hmm. group. Yeah, definitely. I think you just have to be authentic and connection with one another is, you know, not that easy nowadays. But in saying that, because we mentioned Demonition Man before that, you know, about how sex will be becoming in the future, which yeah. is really interesting. And perhaps that, you know, People should start thinking about sex, just not just only on physical levels. I think emotional intelligence levels is particularly important to be attracted sexually. Yeah. Yeah. I think the reason, Helen, why I am so disinterested in sex now as a, someone in her early 30s is because I think back to all the sex I've had and then I think back to all the conversations I've had with men and often the most profound moments in my life have been deep, deep, deep um, genuine conversations where I felt heart to heart connection with a man. And, um, that has been something I haven't felt on an emotional level when I Mm. fuck someone. Like for me, I value the emotional Mm. connection over the fucking. That is why I think just, I could be, I'm so happy to be celibate for the rest of my life. I remember telling this to a guy on a date a few weeks ago and he just looked at me like I said, I'm a Nazi lover. (laughs) Some, yeah, he just gave me the weirdest look. He was like, oh, my God. Like, And I was like, and I felt judged. I felt judged by him because he made me feel like I, there was something wrong with me for not wanting oh, to God. have sex for the rest mm-hmm. of my life. But, like, I really, I don't say that to, like, invite men to try and mm-hmm. fuck me. I don't say that to try and allure people to try and fuck. I don't. I, I say that genuinely. I'm not interested mm-hmm. in fucking. And it might change next week. Yeah. It might change yeah. tomorrow. It might change yeah. never. But, like, I have been thinking this for years that I am so happy to not ever fuck Uh another man. Yeah, of course. That's (laughs) empowerment for you. You know, you get the choice and the decision is whole within your hands. Yeah, that's empowerment for you. Yeah. Yeah, I think I just, what I'm, what I search for in life is not that kind of bodily connection. Mm -hmm. It's not corporeal connection. Mm -hmm. I search for something that's outside of the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Okay, so now we're pleased to have Mary from Soy and Spice Lingerie collaborating with us for the very first time on our podcast as we discuss the topic of sexual empowerment. And I think I've um, either read or hear one of Mary's interview about her idea of starting a lingerie business for her intention to empower women and taking control of their own sexual identity. To me, you know, like when I read in, when I was looking at her business 
uh, name. The soy is in the reference of comfortable and how we Asians, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure about others, but at least this is how I perceive, you know, like soy milk, you know, the pureness and the health benefit of this item. As in for spice, I interpret it as an adventurous and gutsy experience one could take on. Um, I quite like the uh, concept of the combination of soy and spice because as a woman, you know, comfort in my own body is the first step towards feeling empowered in a sexual way. I think feeling content about myself is very important and also the self-satisfactory in sexual experience. So here um, is a clip about Ma- of Mary talking about how her experience and journey as an Asian entrepreneur in Australia and how she began to work on Soy and Spice. My name is Mary Lu, and I'm the founder of Soy and Spice Lingerie. I've been working on Soy and Spice now for just under a year, uh, but before this, I had spent the last 10 years of my career in the startup and entrepreneurial space. Um, I actually started my entrepreneurial journey at the age of 19, where I had co-founded a charity with my best mate back in Adelaide. I grew up in Adelaide and I think it would have been second year of university, uh, me and my best mate uh, started a charity called M Squared. So the charity was essentially aimed at supporting underprivileged children in China and Sri Lanka. So what we used to do was we held donation events and people would come and the proceeds would either go to an institution like an orphanage or go to a child in need directly. Uh, so we ran that charity for about five years. When I came to see in 2012, we were still running the charity, but it got a little bit hard because we were in different states um, and the logistics just got um, quite uh, difficult to manage. So we ended up shutting it down. But when I came here to finish my final year in my bachelor's degree in psychology, I started another business called Ori, which was aimed at helping international students find work experience. So um, when I told my mom that I was going to drop my psych career to become an entrepreneur instead, she freaked out. She was like, are you crazy? Do you even know what you're doing? And, um, you know, when the news went out uh, to the rest of my family, uh, my aunties and uncles were always on my back and you know, asking me what the hell is going on. I've uh, been raised uh, in a single parent family uh, with very traditional Chinese values. Uh, I was always taught to stick to what I know and not to take too many risks. Um, but there was just something about entrepreneurship that I loved. It's a beautiful feeling to be able to turn an idea into a reality and people actually using it. It's actually quite magical. Uh, so since then, I've been a strong advocate in you know just giving things a go. And pushing your boundaries and just trying new things out. And so I recently spent four years at UNSW Founders, which is the startup hub at the University of New South Wales as a program manager. And so while I was there, I was um, essentially helping the student-led startups that came through our doors. Uh, so I was helping them with launching their businesses, coming up with growth strategies with them, and um, connecting them with the right people within the ecosystem to accelerate their growths. So while I was at UNSW Founders, uh, I I realized that the number of male students that came through our doors was far greater than the number of female students. So I went to my manager at the time and uh, I was like, hey, look, I want to 
do something about this. I want to do something about it now. And he was quite supportive of me. And so I started a program called New Wave Founders, which was aimed at tackling this specific problem. So the program was a two-week long incubator program um, where we had invited 30 um, undergraduate female students to join us. And we went out and sourced different mentors and speakers to come and join the program as well. And at the end of the two weeks, um, the students would then pitch their ideas in front of a judge, a panel of judges, and um, they would be able to receive um, some sort of prize. Uh, so the program is actually still running today. And um, within one year of running the program while I was there, we actually managed to increase the number of female participation within entrepreneurship at UNSW by 13%. Um, which is a pretty good number, actually. I left UNSW Founders at the beginning of last year. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I've always been someone that's uh, uh, looking for new challenges. And um, after spending four years there, I felt like my time was up. Um, I needed to go and try something new. So I went and tried corporate for a few months. I tried uh, running, a, uh, managing a um, startup hub in the city for a few months as well, but just wasn't right for me. Um, I've or constantly thought about starting my own thing and that's when I you know decided to make the leap of faith once again um, to go back into entrepreneurship Um, so I've always had a love for lingerie and when I wear it uh, I feel beautiful and I feel very confident but when I talk to my girlfriends about it hardly any of them wear it so I really wanted to create a line of lingerie that they will feel comfortable in wearing and create a brand that represents confidence um, to love ourselves for who we are and to push our boundaries and give new things a go and this could be wearing lingerie for the first time or you know putting your hand up for a new project at work or you know giving something that's completely outside of your comfort zone a go like entrepreneurship for example the main obstacle for me uh, being an Asian woman entrepreneur is the lack of uh, representation in the media uh, you know, I feel like we see a lot of the Elon Musks, the Mark Zuckerbergs, but where are all the uh, Asian entrepreneurs? Uh, not just that, where are all the women Asian entrepreneurs? You know, I feel like media plays such a huge part in our day-to-day lives, and especially as millennials. Um, and that's why I really want to feature Asian lingerie models and just women uh, women across our community openly discussing about topics like beauty standards, for example, um, across all of our channels um, to show that it this is okay, that there's really nothing to be afraid of, um, that we can have an open and healthy discussion about topics like our sexuality and we can and should be able to embrace our bodies um, just the way they are and um, be able to express ourselves through lingerie and love it. So, and so I've been working with a company based in Melbourne called Called um, Melbourne Fashion Labs on creating our first collection. So we'll be using natural materials because they are biodegradable at the end of their life. So I'm looking at organic cotton or organic bamboo, for example. Um, however, uh, it's quite unrealistic for a uh, Andre line to be made out of completely 100% um, natural um, materials um, because things like lace, straps, and the waistband are all synthetics. So in that case, um, we are looking at using recycled synthetics um, sourced from um, places like dead stock fabric waste, um, production trimmings, and um, vintage clothing, for example. So by using upselled materials for these things, uh, we are making sure that we use materials that's already in existence um, and therefore giving them a better use um, than going to the landfill. 
I'm hoping to launch this collection by、uh, summer to spring next year.、Um, fingers crossed if everything goes well.、Um, that's the plan. So I'm very, very excited for that. So the last question you asked me to kind of touch on is what I consider as sexy.、Um, I actually really love this question. And、uh, to me, I feel like what is sexy is being 100% comfortable with being you. And I feel like confidence is the most sexiest. Thing on earth, and so when you are hundred percent confident、uh, with being yourself,、um, there's nothing, there's really nothing else like it.、Um, so that's what I think is the most sexiest. So thank you so much, Mary from Soy and Spice, for coming to our pod to share her experience. For our first ever coll- collaboration, we are holding a competition for our listeners to win a set of beautiful lingerie from Soy and Spice. So please check out our Instagram and Facebook、uh, once we have this episode on air and follow the instructions to enter. Mary had,、uh, has also set up a discount code for our listeners to purchase their product. Upon checkout on at their online store, enter the code hashtag Asian B. So it's hashtag capital A S I A N B for a ten percent discount. Um, our link soy and spices on、uh, their website on our social media platforms. The winner of the prize will be announced in two weeks' time. So I really encourage everyone to follow、uh, their page to stay up on date of the latest fashion and also the news from soy and spice. Okay, so it's coming to the end of our episode. Once again, thank you to our listeners. Remember to subscribe our podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcast. Please give us a rating and review. You can also find us、uh, our update on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Asian Bitches Down Under. We welcome discussions and feedback. So we'll chat to you next week. Bye.